This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. Thank you for tuning in today. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Peter Turchin of the University of Connecticut to the Demo Crises podcast, professor of cultural evolution. Dr. Turchin studies what he calls cliodynamics. He applies many types of mathematical data to models about the rise and fall of civilizations. We discussed his theory in detail in the last episode of Demo Crises. To recap, in 2006, he published War and Peace and War, The Rise and Fall of Empires, where he used these data to show why nations of the past rose and fell. He covered ancient Rome, medieval France, Shakespearean England, and the Russian state, among others. This 350-page book is full of delightful topics, but to highlight two key points, he mentioned that national golden ages rarely last more than a century, and that cycles of rise and fall tend to last two to three centuries total, and that they pivot on whether or not the large empire can work together to solve complex problems. He describes this capacity for collective action with an Arabic word, asabiya, first described by a 14th century Tunisian scholar, and Dr. Turchin calls it the key to history. Whether Asabia is high enough depends on the condition of both the lower classes in society as well as societal elites and how much competition there is within groups and whether those groups are miserable or happy. And then in September 2016, 10 years later, just before the dramatic 2016 U.S. election, Dr. Turchin published Ages of Discord, in which he applied his research to the history of the United States, conducting what scientists call an out-of-sample test, applying the model to some data or system that was not used to make the model. There's some rigorous math in the book, but in summary, he finds a lot of evidence to suggest that the turmoil we're all feeling in the United States reflects a near future that is part of societal decline. And potentially, it could get even worse due to structural factors that will get worse if we don't address them quickly. And today in America, as everyone knows, there's a lot of suffering in the lower middle classes, and there's also fierce competition among elites. And the last time things looked this bad, according to Dr. Turchin, was right before the Civil War. And people then had no idea how severe the trauma was that they would soon experience. I'd like to divide this interview into two parts. First, we get into the details of Dr. Turchin's theory and then to discuss solutions. That's why we're all here. So, Dr. Turchin, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. So, I'd like, I'd like to start um, with the concept of imperial formation. So, you, you mentioned in your book that great empires are really the exception in history. And you mentioned it's due to intra-societal, inter-societal competition. So, can you describe sort of how great societies form in the first place? Well, the basic uh, glue that holds our large, complex societies together is cooperation. It doesn't mean that all people are always cooperative, but in order for our societies to function without falling apart, some people, some of the time, uh, need to cooperate together. I study cooperation from two points of view. First of all, how did it evolve in the long term? How come we have large uh, empires and other large societies, large nation states today? How did they come about? In the second question, we know that all large-scale societies go through periodic breakdowns. They go through periods of breakdown. And so that's the question why uh, cooperation sometimes unravels and why societies actually go into fragmentation, uh, civil war, and sometimes even collapse. 
So, um, with respect to the first question, I like to use the term introduced by the 14th century Arab thinker, Ibn Khaldun, uh, Asabiya. So, Asabiya means basically the feeling of togetherness, but he used it in, specifically in the sense that we use the modern word cooperation. Okay. So, the question is, how, how do societies acquire uh, a large, a good feeling of Asabiya? Ibn Khaldun proposed a partial solution to this question by focusing on the medieval societies inhabiting Northwest Africa and other parts of the Islamic world. However, now that we have much better data and more time, uh, we can do a more broad, we can propose a more broad solution. It turns out that it is really the competition between societies that creates Asabiya within societies. So you need external conflict for internal cooperation to grow. Our empirical research has documented uh, that over and over in history, when competition between societies intensified, and until recently this competition almost always took the form of warfare. So when we see intense periods of warfare, they create the conditions, they create the cauldrons uh, within which high Asabiya can actually grow and appear and grow. It's not uh, perhaps the most uh, nice result that we can get from uh, our historical research, because it turns out that war, horrible as it is, and I am actually a pacifist, I don't like war at all, but we have to uh, see the data in its face. And in the data show that over the period of recorded history, intense bouts of warfare were the uh, cauldrons within which large-scale cooperative societies emerged. Can you give some examples? I can think of the Romans against the Germanic tribes, for example. Well, actually, you need to go a little bit uh, back in history. When you look at Roman uh, Republic, when it was still not a huge empire, it actually arose on the frontier between what might call civilization versus barbarism. And by, 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 by barbarism, I don't mean to be uh, anything negative. Essentially, if you look at the Europe during the Iron Age, we will see that uh, in the north we had a long, uh, we had a large-scale grouping, we call them the Celts or Celts, um, and in the south we had essentially Mediterranean civilization. So these were very different types of people, and the intensity of warfare between the Celtic groups and the uh, Latins was uh, very intense. And so we can trace the rise of Rome to actually this uh, period of very intense between societal competition. And other examples, I think, in your book include the Russians trying to fend off the steppe nomads of Central Asia. You've even mentioned the United States and their their competition with Native Americans. Is is that is that still accurate? Oh yes, absolutely. So, um, especially if you look at the distribution of large empires before, let's say, fifteen hundred, before the age of gunpowder, you find that over ninety percent of large empires were located at or near the frontiers with steppe civilizations of central Eurasia. Hmm. So this conflict between, this, between the nomadic uh, pastoralist uh, groups 
and their farming agrarian societies was very intense. Uh, it was rife with genocide, ethnocide, mm. and uh, many other sides. So you're talking about against, for example, the Indian, big, the big Mughal Empire in India, the Ottoman Empire. They were all right well, against the, the steppe, right? The best examples would be China. China, okay. So China has uh, the longest run of uh, great empires, over 2,000 years of them. And the reason is, is because all these Chinese empires arose on the northwestern frontier of China with the steppe, with Mongols and before them, uh, Shunnu, uh, Turks, and other groupings. Um, the other example at the other end of uh, the continent is Russia. Russia also arose on the frontier with the same uh, groups, mostly the Turkic, Mongolic uh, groups. Okay, so you, you say that uh, competition between societies really is necessary for internal uh, cooperation. So I turn. I tend to look at the. We you know we're looking at the United States now. Is it is is suffering a great deal of societal disharmony, and a lot of data that I've seen suggests that the partisanship really started to increase in the 1990s. So um, when they lost their common enemy in the Soviet Union, you know people like to say. Uh, it used to be that partisanship ended at the water's edge because they had to deal with someone like the Soviet Union. Um, now that we don't really have a major existential threat outside, um, it seems to me that your research suggests that that's that it would be expected that we would start to have significant squabbling internally, that our cooperation would deteriorate. And we look at Congress now, we see very little cooperation. We see uh, essentially tribalism. Do you think that it is an accurate reading of the United States political situation, that it is related to the loss of a common enemy? Partly, yes. Okay. It's not the whole story, but uh, it's, it's a part of the larger story. But let me actually step back. I mean, I've been talking about competition between societies, and specifically, uh, I don't necessarily want to reduce everything down to warfare. Because what's important is that competition between societies taking, taking non-lethal forms can also be a, a very powerful evolutionary force for creating SIB within societies. So I grew up in the Soviet Union, for example, and of course the Soviet Union didn't collapse because it was militarily conquered by the United States. What happened was that the Soviet Union lost important aspects in competition. And it, and it was actually realized within the Soviet Union, and that was a big motive for uh, trying to change things. Sorry, can, you, can you say a little more about that? So you're saying uh, cooperation broke down in the Soviet Union because they lost the competition against the West? No, what I'm saying is that um, the reforms that uh, that Soviet Union, you know, Russia, went through, uh, are explained not because there was a hot war between uh, the Soviet Union and United States, but because uh, the Soviet Union lost in competition with the United States in uh, economic and ideological terms. And, that, right. and you're saying that fostered... Uh, what I'm, what the point here is that competition does not have to take lethal forms. It doesn't have to be warfare. And since I am actually very much, uh, I, I very much wish that the wars would end eventually, that humanities, the humanity learns how to evolve without wars, I'm thinking very hard about what, what other kinds of competition can actually uh, foster uh, cooperation in this idea. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that. Let me just make sure I'm, I'm crystal clear. You're saying that, the, that when the Soviet Union fell, communism ended and it was replaced by reforms, that that was a positive development as a consequence of 
competition with the West. Is that correct? Well, we don't necessarily have to do value judgments, all right? The point here is a larger one, that what we see is cultural evolution in action. The Soviet Union had a set of institutions— all right, and then uh, it evolved and acquired another set of institutions, mm-hmm. and the result of uh, uh, and uh, this uh, uh, evolutionary change was as a result of between societies' competition, specifically with the United States. That's so what I'm saying. Got it. So you um, you you want more non-lethal competition? That's, exactly. That and seems like a good idea. So you mentioned so obviously in the in the Cold War there was everything from a chess competition to the Olympics to a nuclear buildup. Um, can you talk about sort of what kind, kinds of competitions you think would be uh, healthy? Uh, for I can think of trade. I can think of sport. I can think of inventions. I can think of working together. Who can solve climate change the fastest? I mean, can you? Can you? That's a great solution if we could if we could foster it. It's a little against human nature, perhaps, but we're also trying to transcend that. So, can you talk a little more about what you see? possible in the short term? I think at the most fundamental level, different states in the world now compete in creating high living uh, standards for their citizens. And so those countries that fail to do that, they suffer from a lot of uh, internal turbulence and uh, evolution actually acts on them to change. So obviously, the Arab Spring was a very complex uh, event uh, and took very different forms in different Arab countries, but uh, one of the basic driving force was the unwillingness of their populations to continue not to have uh, high levels of uh, standards. By that, I mean not just economic, but much more broad, in much more broad sense. So the quality of life, their governments were not delivering it, and many of these governments fell as a result of that. That's what I would, I would, I would argue. So it's, it's interesting you said. So I went to a, a lecture by Bill Gates about a year ago when he was talking about improving health uh, in the developing world. And he said, you know, one thing that really gets the attention of the president of, say, Ethiopia is you show them, you know, Kenya is really improving on this child mortality issue or on um, improving uh, women's rights or something like that. The, the competition with nearby countries really gets their attention in a way that other things don't, which which leads right into your theory. So living standards is one. Um, it's probably, I would suspect it's not sufficient mm-hmm. uh, because human nature is what it is. Um, so what else uh, do you think would be really low-hanging fruit for this type of competition? Is sport enough? Is sport a good idea? Well, uh, sport obviously does unify populations, uh, but I personally don't think it's a very powerful uh, force. So I would just say that uh, as long as we treat quality of life as a multidimensional thing, it's not just uh, jobs and wages, it's also health, it's also capacity to lead interesting lives. So uh, as long as we look at it as a complex of uh, different dimensions, I think that's really what's driving the intersocietal competition today. Okay, and what about what about cooperating across societies? For example, there are things like climate change, which the millennials are rather worried about because yeah, it may really affect their future. That's a common challenge. You know, that's that would be societies working together to conquer a common challenge. Do you think that it is reasonable, or is it um, is it too naive to suspect that the U.S., China, and Iran? could all cooperate to take on this common challenge of climate change. It hasn't worked so far. Right. It hasn't worked so far, so it's an empirical issue. Um, I think it's possible, but it's a, it's a big, big, big question whether humanity has evolved to the point where you can cooperate against a faceless environment rather than against uh, other people. 
You'll see. Got it. So we've talked about um, what what it's like when societies work together and build a great civilization. What what does it look like when societies have lost Asabiya and started to break apart? What does the disintegrative phase of the cycle you describe look like? Can you paint a picture for Americans that are worried about the next decade? Okay, yeah, let's talk about the United States because that's uh, where I have empirically delved into the study of uh, this particular society. So the disappearance of an external threat was definitely one of the components uh, that changed the environment and weakened forces uh, sustaining uh, high cooperation within the United States. But there are other forces. And so, in fact, it it turns out that our historical analysis shows that the types of troubles we go through here and now are not unique and not new. Essentially, all complex societies, even large societies that are not threatened by others, they go through these century-long periods of first good conditions and then uh, another century-long period of bad conditions. So the question is why? Why do we see these cycles, essentially, in the rise and fall of uh, cooperation? And... um, To address this question, we need to consider what happens um, when a society is at peace internally and uh, economy grows, populations uh, grow, uh, wealth increases, and also what's very important, uh, the memory of the previous civil war starts to fade. So how many people live today who have experienced the American civil war? So what happened is that as the memory of the previous conflict fades, the elites, and by the elites, I mean a a neutral sociological definition. This is the small percentage of the population who concentrate the social power in their their hands. So the economic power, administrative power, military power, although that's not terribly important in the United States, and ideological power. So as um, the memory of the previous conflict recedes, the many elite individuals attempted to behave in more selfish ways. So they are looking uh, to increase their own wealth and their own quality of life, and they don't care really about that much about the society as a whole. All right? And because they are uh, in power, they can do many things that will actually swing uh, this, um, uh, the direction of the, in which society develops in favor of the small percentage of the people. So think about it, 1% versus 99%. So 1% start getting away with uh, behaving in ways that promote uh, their interests rather than the interest of the society as a whole. And so that's really a very basic dynamic uh, at the bottom of it. And so what we see in the United States is that as the memory of conflicts faded, the elites um, who used to tax themselves, you remember back in 1960, the um, tax rate on the top incomes was 90%. Mm-hmm. It just, just thinks, it, it, it seems unthinkable, right? To now. help uh, foster the cooperation to win World War II. I mean, they were directly related. Yes, but uh, it was 80, it was 1960. Right, right. So, uh, yes, there was some cold war. It was war. left over. From yeah. yeah. So, yes, I agree that the external conflict was playing a role in it. All right. But um, more importantly, these people uh, lived through the Great Depression and the, the period of great uh, social and economic turbulence preceding that. All right. And as a result of that, they were much more prosocial. So uh, American uh, political scientist Robert Putnam calls them the great civic uh, generation. 
And so when the great civic generation uh, started to die out, a new generation came to power who did not experience all those uh, searing events personally. And they uh, gradually started to abandon the consensus which was uh, forged during the New Deal. And the consensus was that um, uh, everybody participates in the growth of uh, economy. The workers uh, get their share, uh, the businessmen get their share, and basically we're trying to keep the inequality down as a, as a result of that. And uh, that when you have reasonably low inequality, you have a much greater capacity for cooperation, both between, let's say, uh, economic elites and workers and amongst uh, the economic elites themselves. So that started to unravel. And as a result of that, uh, roughly about 19, mid-1970s, we start suddenly see starting development. Whereas uh, before 1975, let's say, the median wages, typical wages of American workers, they increased even a little bit faster than GDP per capita. Mm. So workers were actually getting ahead in the game and uh, capitalists, so to speak, they were uh, losers, not huge losers, but they were not doing as well. And then we have this break point. Suddenly, essentially, the real wages stopped growing. Real wages is uh, wages adjusted for inflation. They stopped growing and the economy continued to grow but real wages stopped growing and all that extra surplus, all that extra economic growth went to the top 1%, one tenth of 1%, one hundredth of 1%, and so on and so forth. And that was the driver of what we call inequality. But essentially what it means is that the large segments of American population, their, their um, economic well-being stagnated or even declined. And as a result, all the extra uh, economic growth that we have experienced since then went to the top uh, 1% or even smaller fractions of the population. And you write in your book, um, that's the same thing that happened in medieval France in Shakespearean England. The rich got very, very rich, ostentatiously rich. They were wearing huge costumes, big crowns, and they really and, – and one thing that I think is very elegant about your theory, makes it different from a lot of these people that predict the fall of society, is you talk about this, this concept of elite conflict. So there's a fixed number of elite positions in society. There's one president, for example. There's 435 congressmen. But as you get more and more rich people, they they aspire to higher and higher societal positions. So they start to compete amongst themselves. And one way of doing that is they tax the peasants more and more. But another way they do that is they rise – I think you or somebody else calls them elite aspirants. They aspire to be elites even though they're not born into it and, and they sort of hold a grudge. And so when I hear, when I hear that, I, I hear Donald Trump. Donald Trump is an elite aspirant. He's extremely rich. He wants to be accepted by um, – the high society, but they don't. And so his response to that was to essentially raise a angry army behind him and use tribal language to raise that army and foster elite conflict between himself and established elites like the Clintons. Do you, am I reading your theory and history correctly and, and, and does it match history? 
Oh, absolutely. So what we see now in the United States, um, okay, of course, the United States is quite a different society from ancient Rome, and we have to take this into account, but our theory does take that into account. But let me step back. So uh, I started working on, on the United States about 10 years ago, and in 2010, I published uh, a short article in Nature, one of the premier mm-hmm. science uh, magazines, in which I actually uh, stuck my neck out and I made the prediction that by 2020, the United States will enter a period of high uh, social and political instability. And at that time, I had no idea uh, that it would be Trump um, Mm -hmm. specifically or uh, whoever else, because uh, the model operates not on individuals, but more on uh, social forces and uh, groups of people. So you mentioned this elite aspirants. Let's talk about that. That's a very important group of people. So under uh, there is always competition between elites, and uh, some level of it is uh, very important because you want to better better uh, individuals to get selected for positions. But what happens if you get too many elite aspirants? And the reason you get too many elite aspirants during these pre-crisis periods is that when the uh, incomes and wages of commoners stagnate. So all the extra stuff goes to the top levels of the income distribution. And so for a while, that's nice and peachy because obviously, we are, you know, the wealthy are getting even wealthier, but more importantly, we get more of them. Right, so we can actually trace. We have good data. We know that the number of millionaires, decamillionaires, as are people who have wealth of ten millions or more, and so on, it has tripled or quadrupled uh, just in the last uh, twenty-five years or so. Right, so we have many more uh, wealthy people. That's great, of course, uh, from one point of view. But the problem is that when people acquire a lot of wealth, they often try, many of them, uh, decide to convert it into other forms of power. And specifically, they uh, are interested in political power, either because they think that the society is not doing the right thing, or maybe they just uh, want the status. There are many different reasons. Some uh, of the wealth, newly wealthy individuals run themselves. Others, uh, uh, you know, support uh, candidates. But what happens as a result of a large increase uh, in the top levels of the income pyramid and the wealth pyramid is that we now have a triple or quadruple the number of uh, people who are interested in getting their uh, political um, uh, offices uh, from the president down. And these are elite aspirants. If uh, inter-elite competition for these positions becomes so intense then some individuals find that they can get ahead of the group by using underhanded methods, and that spreads, and that also destroys uh, cooperation, all right? So it starts this war, essentially. It's an autocatalytic uh, process. The more people break the rules, the more rules are uh, uh, disrespected, and that increases the number of people who break the rules. And so this is what we have seen, especially clearly over the last uh, two years, or maybe a little bit longer than that, we see how the institutions and norms, uh, social norms are rules of behavior, how those institutions and norms that have um, regulated political competition, they're breaking down. So what's a, what's a great historical example where that happened? Where did elites overpopulate, elite aspirants tried to take power, 
and they did it by underhanded means and it really fractured the society's cooperation. What's a good historical precedent? Actually, it happens in uh, almost every case that we have studied, but you mentioned uh, 16th century France. Let's go to France. Uh, many people here will not know much about the Thir history. 13th century. Uh, no, uh, uh, 16th, 16th century. Okay. So uh, we're talking about the period just before the wars of religion that started in 1560. So by that point, uh, France uh, had a very serious uh, overpopulation. There were too many nobles, basically. We have good data to show it. And so these nobles, especially the second sons, they uh, wanted to get ahead in the game, and they looked to the government for positions, for example, military officers and things like that. And so as the competition for uh, between uh, elite aspirants uh, increased, uh, they started uh, coagulating into several uh, networks, power networks, and those networks competed for the state patronage, and they basically tried to monopolize it. And so just on the eve of the war, the Catholic League essentially uh, monopolized the, the whole state patronage and excluded all the Huguenots uh, from it and uh, many others. And uh, that was uh, one of the reasons why Huguenots felt so – I mean, it wasn't just because they didn't get uh, the offices. Uh, they felt the situation was palpably unfair. So this feeling of uh, that it was uh, unjust – uh, was also driving uh, very much this uh, conflict. And again, I don't want to uh, simplify the conflict. There were many different dimensions to it. Uh, religion, religious dimension was very important. But um, this monopolization of uh, state patronage was actually the triggering mechanism that uh, led to the civil war because uh, the Duke of Guise was assassinated, actually, and that there was they started a, a period of assassination, assassinations, encounter assassinations, and so that all very rapidly blew up uh, into a civil war. Okay, so can you can you clarify, there were some details in there that if you haven't read 16th century French history recently, you might have missed. So um, who were the two sides in this case that were, that were fighting? So it, it, there were two sides that were um, uh, demarcated by uh, religious observance. So this was Catholics versus Protestants. Okay, and the Huguenots were? Huguenots were Protestants. Protestants. So the Catholic League excluded the Protestants yes. because there were too many nobles and the Catholic League wanted to seize all the power. There was uh, When you have a limited uh, uh, resources yeah. and you have lots of competitors for those resources, one strategy is to organize and exclude everybody else from those resources. And that's what the... Uh, fraction led by the Dukes de Guise uh, actually Catholic. accomplished. Yes, Catholic. who was Catholic. Got it. So um, you mentioned in your book that um, this period of disintegration of cooperation usually happens, but you said that there's approximately 10%, I believe you said, uh, of societies where they don't fall into terrible civil war. Um, is that right? And, and if whatever that percent is, what do those societies do right that the other 90% of societies don't do right? Okay. Well, let's step back a bit. So um, let's talk about the pre-crisis uh, period, uh, which is driven by, um, uh, first and foremost, uh, elite overproduction, which is the technical term for too many elite aspirants, increased inter-elite competition and conflict. But the additional forces that feed into the crisis is what we call popular immiseration. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the falling or stagnating or falling living standards on four 
most of the population. And the third important uh, component is the fiscal weakness of the state. Mm -hmm. These three forces actually feed on each other. Again, those three forces are elite overproduction, popular immiseration, and and, state financial and, and state stress. weakness, state okay. yes, state distress, state uh, financial weakness or distress. So um, as these forces intensify, they basically erode social resilience to internal and external shocks, right? And they uh, result in what we can call a revolutionary situation. Mm -hmm. So revolutionary situation does not have to result in a revolution or civil war or anything like that. However, it is when uh, such outbreak of violence is extremely uh, likely. Mm -hmm. So, um, and getting to this point seems to be a fairly channelized. I mean, uh, all societies in our sample, they approach it in very similar ways. However, after, uh, when the crisis actually breaks out, there is a whole fan of possibilities. Uh, some of these possibilities are really uh, negative. You can have uh, collapse. Uh, half of the population dies as a result of civil war, you know, epidemics, uh, maybe external invasion uh, or whatever. But there is also the opposite route. Some societies, some elites manage to pull together after they realize the severity of the situation, adopt uh, the necessary set of reforms rebalance uh, the society, get, uh, make sure that uh, uh, take care of the elite of production and uh, popular immigration, and uh, essentially uh, escape very lightly. So the crisis uh, happens anyway, but the question is how do societies respond so to a this great, crisis? You know, a great example of that in American history, I think, would be 1900. So one of our episodes in the future is about how Teddy Roosevelt essentially took a country that was falling apart at the seams. The, the labor masses were, were in revolt. There were riots. There were strikes. There were um, and the, the elites, the 1%, the Gilded Age, the very rich people were essentially exploiting them. And Teddy Roosevelt, the, le the leader, the elite, um, managed to institute the right reforms. And so basically what you're saying is if we just do the right darn policies, we can avoid the terrible outcomes. Is, is that correct? Yes. So in uh, my book, Ages of Discord, I actually probe uh, exactly what happened during this uh, period. So we are talking about two important periods uh, of uh, in the United States uh, history, the progressive period, which is when Teddy Roosevelt was um, quite active. Of course, then there was uh, World War I and then the New Deal. So many of the reforms were actually discussed and even half implemented even before the New Deal during the uh, progressive era and uh, during the World War I. But uh, the New Deal essentially uh, formalized it, and it created uh, an unwritten contract between the elites and the population. Hmm. All right. So, and of course— uh, Examples included the eight-hour workday, the uh, direct election of senators, the rights of women to vote— um, the ability of workers to organize. Mm -hmm, labor, yep. Yes, and then uh, things like Social Security, mm -hmm. for example, which is a broad The Federal Reserve creation. Uh, yes, but mm -hmm. Social Security is very important uh, because it spread, it actually reduced poverty on the part of old and so on and so forth. So how did this happen? Well, it didn't happen on its own. Uh, United States was in a revolutionary situation during the 1920s, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, uh, I have collected data. If you look at the dynamics of rights riots, um, terrorism, and other uh, incidents of um, political violence, they peaked during the 1920s. And so the elites were frightened. But additionally, we were lucky to have the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. It basically provided another shock to the elites that they cannot go, mm -hmm. they could not go um, as they have, mm -hmm. as they had. 
right? And so uh, all those together and the presence of a very uh, pro-social group, which was led by the second Roosevelt, uh, FDR, uh, and his um, uh, colleagues, they managed to persuade the elites that if they don't want to have a revolution, they have to adopt the set of reforms. And there was a lot of resistance against FDR and his uh, colleagues. He was called a traitor to his own class. Mm. But he was, was, he actually (laughs) saved uh, the American uh, uh, systems. He saved democracy and uh, capitalism, essentially, by making it much capitalism in the human face. So you mentioned the 1920s. I just want to say real fast. So that, for example, that was the big Klan march in 1925 where they were upset about uh, immigrants. They reduced immigration sharply. Um, And we were were lucky. Calvin Coolidge, despite being a very staunch conservative – really led the nation to, a, he, he said, we're better than this. And he took he did not take the side of the Klan as opposed to, say, the current president who may or may not have tacitly supported the, the marches in Charlottesville. Um, well, this, there, there's so much. So very, very simply, I mean, are we, are we witnessing, I mean, you've kind of said yes, but are we witnessing the United States in a disintegrative phase right now? Does there need to be a big warning to the people that this really can get worse? Uh, yes, absolutely. We are. It's very similar situation to 1850s, mm-hmm. just before the American Civil War, or in the 1920s um, uh, during the uh, last revolutionary uh, situation. So, unfortunately, um, uh, unfortunately, our elites, our political elites, are in, seem to be incapable of understanding the basic forces driving. Um, the present uh, time of troubles. So let me let me ask you about that. So you've said, I mean, I think there's actually a great message here, which is that disaster can be averted if we just do the right policies and we have enough data to more or less know what the right policies are. The problem is we need the right people, the right elites to choose those right policies. Mm-hmm. Are there examples in the past where societies picked the right leaders for tough times? So FDR is a very good example of okay. that. And then you deal Okay. that they uh, did. Another example would be the chartist uh, period in Great Britain's uh, history. That's 1830s. So just to remind um, our listen- listeners, during the middle of the 19th uh, century, most of the Western societies went through revolutions, such as Austro-Hungary, France, uh, Germany. United States had a very bloody civil war. And the United Kingdom was really the only major a power that escaped uh, this. And they uh, they had a very turbulent period during the 1830s, but it but the elites pulled together and basically um, adopted the right uh, set of reforms. Why? Why? Uh, because they were frightened uh, by, they were in a revolutionary situation. They understood uh, what was happening and they uh, decided to deal with it, not by repression, but by uh, trying to rebalance the society. Well, how did we get people who did the right thing instead of the I mean, there, there were previous English rulers that responded to fright with mass terror. So yeah. why did these why did these English rulers or leaders do a better job than, say, I don't know, any of the bad English kings from the movies? That's actually a very interesting question, uh, and I wish I knew uh, the answer. Uh, we can actually find the answer uh, because we plan specifically to look at the role of leaders and social movements in uh, making decisions, uh, making societies to decide which of the routes to to take. But right now, I don't have the data. So actually, now that, now that I think of it, um, in the book Why Nations Fail, 
by James Robinson and Asimoglu, they say that England's leaders were just in, in about 1689 because of the Glorious Revolution. They were just a little bit more pro-social than the other monarchs of Europe because of sort of a very tiny initial condition mm -hmm. that spread over time, sort of like evolution. A little change at the beginning will lead to bigger and bigger differences over time. And they show in their book that the 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 rights of the people in Britain – in the 1600s started out a little better and then when they got new world riches uh, most of the European monarchs kept all the riches for themselves but the English couldn't so the people of England got stronger compared to the regular people of Europe and so I think that's what they would say they would say that England was just a little bit more pro-social culturally than the other nations of Europe and the other thing I want to say in your book um, War and Peace and War you talk about how Rome's golden age was the five good emperors where the Romans picked emperors based on merit Rather, like who would be the best person for the job instead of who was whose son, and um, and that that seems like a good idea. I wish we could pick uh, leaders based on merit. Um, but Robinson and Ajamalu's um, uh, explanation is essentially a his historical accident. Uh, well, there's been some uh, research on this. There's a lot of research on uh, the Glorious Revolution. Uh, one factor that people uh, don't uh, remember to take into account is that uh, leaders who uh, particip participated in Glorious Revolution, they remembered the civil wars of uh, 1640s mm, yes. um, uh, much, uh, quite vividly, uh, right? And the same thing about uh, the leaders who in the United States in the early uh, 20th century, many of them actually remembered civil war. So this uh, mm -hmm. uh, historical memory is very important factor. It's a general factor, actually, Boy. that acts in many different societies. Wouldn't it be nice if we could learn that in school? So I, I'd like to, to bring this um, uh, interview to, to a, an end. So I'll ask a couple of really short questions. Uh, a great quote in your book is that sudden collapse of the state finances is a common trigger of civil war and, and big problems. Um, and violence is the twenty-one trillion dollar debt in the United States a problem? Like, it's, do, we, do we need to be really worried? It's a, it's a big problem, yeah. especially because it's growing yeah. uh, as a result of uh, very recently adopted legislation. Uh, it's it's going to be unsustainable quite soon. And you're doing some really cool research called the of the Seshat database. And and can you briefly tell uh, listeners what they can? get excited about from your research in, in the coming future. So Seshat uh, is, uh, was the Egyptian deity of scribing, uh, writing, and also data databases uh, by implication. And uh, we uh, call this huge uh, data set of historical and archaeological information. However, uh, that project is really asking the first question that uh, I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, how do large-scale complex societies arise? What are the factors that explain the evolution of such uh, huge uh, human groupings. So we are, yes, so this project has been completely fabulous. We are, we have tons of data, very busy. How many, how many I think you have over 100,000 data points? Oh, yes, we have uh, a quarter of a million oh data points. And each data point is a tip of an iceberg. iceberg. Yeah. So it's like 5 million triples, which is the atom of uh, data it, in, this, uh, in this thing. And it's fascinating types of data, right? Like iron ore production and grain production. But also social, uh, you know, how many levels in the uh, military hierarchy, for example, uh, societies have. And all kinds of detailed uh, data of this kind. And from which centuries and which continents? It's uh, over the last 10,000 years, and we are sampling evenly all uh, continents. It's not all uh, the data that uh, historians collectively know. You have to sample. But our sample is spread across the whole world. And right now you're working on figuring out 
the details of how great empires form, correct? So right now we're analyzing this data uh, to, to test and reject many of the, hypo of the hypotheses and theories. But at the same time, I would like to return to the question of how complex societies fail. So we are right now writing a big uh, grant proposal. Hopefully, if, we, if it gets funded, we'll be able to answer the question you raise, is what is the role of uh, pro-social leaders and social movements in uh, determining the outcomes of revolutionary situations? So one of my favorite examples from your book is Southern Italy, a uh, place not a lot of Americans know well. They certainly don't know the culture of it very well. But you talk about how it's um, it's a place of real societal discord. They really don't trust each other. Um, can you tell us uh, the details of that and, and why and, and how it fits into your broader theory? So actually the boundary between a more cooperative and less cooperative societies within Italy is uh, well known to sociologists. Robert Putnam, for example, who proposed the concept of social capital, has even measured uh, the lack of social capital in Mezzogiorno, which is the southern uh, part of Italy. There are a variety of explanations that people have proposed, but our theory offers actually a more general explanation. So uh, if you think about uh, large empires, uh, what happens is they move all that competition with other societies away from the centers, all right, and then in the center, you start getting populations grow to the Malthusian, uh, let's say, equilibrium, which means a lot of immiseration. You have a lot of elite overproduction as a result of that. And so the Asibia starts to self-destruct in those cores. All right, and as the capacity of cores to cooperate declines, uh, you actually have the formation of what we sometimes call Asibia black holes. And these Asibia black holes are extremely durable. So it happens that southern Italy was the core of the Roman Empire. Roman Empire has collapsed uh, more than 1,500 years ago, but this collapsed black uh, hole of Asibia is still there and still uh, uh, present. All right. So this day, basically, you look at any uh, large empire that existed for a long period of time and then collapsed under its own uh, weight, and you will often find an Siberia black hole uh, in there. So that brings us right back to the United States. So you say that uh, these cycles of rise and fall tend to be two to three centuries. The United States is, of course, 240 years old. And so as we look at the United States, th there is an obvious place of an Asabia black hole right in the right in the heartland of, of America between, say, Washington, D.C., where we can't get along, or between mm -hmm. North and South. And so, you know, getting back to solutions. So mm -hmm. we, we've talked about we need to get the right people in place. Mm -hmm. We need to foster a culture of cooperation somehow, which can start at the local level. Um, but just do you have thoughts on how um, individuals or especially elites that might be listening to this or even aspirant elites, of which there are many in our society right now, how can they all foster a society of Asabia and avoid the terrible outcome? Well, first of all, I would like to argue a little bit back against your idea that we have an Asabia black hole in the United States. Yes, uh, co cooperation has declined quite substantially, but it has declined from a very high level. Back in the 19th century, observers such as Alexis de Tocqueville have uh, noted how uh, incredibly cooperative uh, American society is. Mm -hmm. And so even though we had a lot of decline, we are not uh, nowhere near to the point where, uh, you know, it's an uh, 
uh, it's a black hole. Uh, also, keep in mind that it takes uh, two or three of these uh, secular cycles to really uh, drive this idea into zero, right? In the uh, Roman example, uh, there was a cycle of the Roman Republic, uh, then uh, the Principate. And it took then, about a thousand years, four, four it took, cycles, Yeah, right? it took about, yeah, four cycles. It took him about a thousand years to really uh, thoroughly destroy Siberia in southern Italy. But it's true that there were hundred-year periods of real misery and real Exactly, but then the society reconstituted yeah. themselves. But, it, but for those of us that are going to live less than a hundred years, I'd really yeah. like to avoid that hundred-year period of, okay. of awfulness. And so, all right, we'll get to that point, that, that part. Um, but first of all, so uh, what, what it would take here uh, in this country is, uh, unfortunately, I don't see any other way but having substantial uh, political violence, which hopefully will uh, uh, pull, make elites uh, to pull together and start uh, coming up with solutions. You think right. we, we have to have political violence? At this point, happen? I don't see. Uh, uh, the question is, is uh, the degree hmm. to which it will happen. Will sure. it be similar to uh, 1960s and early 70s? Or is it going to be more like um, uh, 1860s? Hmm. Hopefully not. Or, but, or again, 1900. Yeah. There, was, yes. there were wars. There were labor wars. The Colorado labor wars, the Pennsylvania exactly. coal strike. I mean, they were violent. Yeah, exactly. When you have more than 10,000 rifle-armed miners uh, battling out against the Civil Guard, uh, an American, uh, actually, uh, uh, Air Force uh, was used against the miners. Well, it didn't bomb them, but they just scouted them. Which battle are you talking about? Uh, you're talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain. In 1920-something? 1921. Yeah, 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 in West Virginia. In West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, during the West Virginia Mine Wars. That was during the 1920s period of political violence. Yes, it was during this, uh, this spike I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, so, so, yes, so something like that uh, seems... Uh, uh, unavoidable. So that my hope is that uh, we will not go to the extreme of um, American Civil War. Wow. Uh, but one thing is that, you know, hopefully uh, people will start listening to uh, what kind of results uh, we are producing. Yeah. Because uh, if you think about it, we are the first society that actually has, uh, at least some people, some uh, scientists have uh, some understanding of the forces uh, driving us to crisis. So that's the first step in actually finding the remedies, if, if you know what the causes are. What final messages do you have for the audience? You know, there are people in the audience that think everything's going to be okay. There are people who think we're doomed. And then there are people who are sort of everywhere in between. Um, what messages do you have to all three groups of people? So these problems are solvable, but they take concerted collective action. Uh, individuals cannot do it. It would have to be a social movement of some kind. Right, right now, I don't see the basis for a social movement that would be able to unify both the right and the left. Right? Mm -hmm. So we probably will have to see some um, significant violence before people will uh, start uh, thinking about doing something like this. But I'm neither um, a, uh, I, I, I don't agree with either of the extreme scenarios. Uh, getting um, concerted collective action uh, together is a very difficult process, uh, that's granted. But uh, past societies have done it, so why shouldn't we be able to do it? And again, you're not advocating political violence. You just are – you are pet, You are concerned that essentially we're so far down that path right now that it's almost inevitable. Correct? I'm appalled. I mean, uh, remember I published this prediction uh, 10 years ago almost, and uh, things are progressing precisely on the trajectory predicted by the model. All right. Uh, so um, I'm appalled at the fact that we are, seem to be uh, – we collectively are repeating the mistakes of previous societies. 
Well, I, I think you've laid out uh, a, several real actionable solutions. Uh, thanks for doing this research. I think it's fascinating. Both of the books that I've read were really a pleasure to read. Um, you can follow Peter Turchin at Peter underscore Turchin on Twitter. You can read his blog at peterturchin.com. So, Dr. Peter Turchin, thanks so much for coming on the program. We really appreciate having you today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo. 